0: Good morning, church family. Good to see you. You survived another family camp, amen? Some of you survived by uh, just kind of making sure you didn't. Oh, you, yeah, you'll need that, amen. And uh, Brother Adam, you know you're getting out of shape when you complain about your exercise routine being cornhole. Amen. <laughs> <So, but, laughs> amen. Although it's looking pretty good for me right now, too, I That's kind of about what I want right there. I used to be a big runner, you know, and then my chest went for my drawers, my uh, knees starting to go out, and I'll go, I'm a Planet Fitness guy, you know, I do the elliptical. You know, yeah, yeah. So, amen. Well, good to have all of you. Appreciate again your warm hospitality. Always enjoy coming through. And very quickly, before I go any further, how many of you need a handout for this morning's message? We have a little worksheet, front and back, a handout or a pen. Just raise your hand. My wife will scamper that over to you, a handout or a pen. And uh, good, boy, oh boy, great. Well, take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of James, James chapter 1, James chapter 1. I want to remind you on the way out this morning, please stop by, see my wife, and be sure to pick up our latest family ministry newsletter. It does feature the marriage of our daughter, Chandra. She got married, and little Chandra was the one, if you remember the singing group, she would smile with her eyes when she would sing. She was one of the most ebullient little souls in our singing group. And in that wedding now, her maiden name was Summerdorf. I've mentioned this in the camp. She married Josiah Hackendorf. So the Summerdorf became a Hackendorf. And Dad got to officiate that. I had a little fun with that. So be sure to grab a newsletter for your family, a prayer card if you don't have it. And, of course, if you'd like to, ladies, if you want to get the book my wife just authored, This, the response on this has been overwhelming. It's called Becoming a Glorious Daughter of the King. You would say, well, well your wife, what kind of wisdom does she have? She raised six children in a motorhome. 325 square feet. At one time, five of those children were teenagers. And she raised me. And I was the biggest teenager of the whole herd, I'm telling you. And now she's a grandmother of 11. Incredible wit, wisdom, and great help if you are interested in becoming a glorious daughter of your king. So you see her afterwards if you want that. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James is a very challenging book. In James chapter 1. It is written to believers, and the central theme in the book of James is a challenge to grow up. Look at what said here in James chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Then he says, my brethren. Notice this is very specifically to believers. He says, my brethren, count it all joy. When ye fall into diverse temptations, which would have the idea of trials, tribulations, and tests. Notice, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James deals with authentic Christianity. And the theme and the challenge throughout the book of James is simply this, grow up. Grow up in the faith and knowledge of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to look at an area that your God, your Father, wants you to grow up in. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege and honor to be gathered in your Son's name the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one and only Savior. We thank you for him this morning. In his name, we pray your blessing upon our time. As we consider your challenge for us to grow, I pray this morning we would, Father, yield to you, allow your grace to be in our heart, our life, and for each one that names the name of Christ as Savior. Lord, help us in this area to grow up in this morning. Lord, for the one among us, they're not saved. There's no peace. There's no joy. Life is a trial, a tribulation. Lord, I pray they would turn their eyes upon Jesus Christ. May they recognize He is and wants to be their all in all. And He offers them peace and eternal life. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This morning, Lord, may you grace us with your presence. Speak to every heart. Meet our needs, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. James deals with authentic Christianity. And the central theme throughout the book of James is a challenge to grow up. Don't continually act like a child. But grow up in the knowledge of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word perfect is found at least six times in the book of James, and it has this idea to be mature, to be complete, to be grown up. I want to say this morning that growth ought to be expected in a believer's life. Just like a baby when it's born, it's very unnatural if that baby doesn't grow. And when you were born again, God expected you to grow. Growth is also normal in living things. Only living things grow, dead things never do. And so, growth is normal in living things. Also, I want to say this growth is a sign of health. If something's healthy, it grows. I want to say this morning, as I begin to move into this thought, that if you've never grown up in any of your area of your life, spiritually and emotionally, That is not a sign of health. Amen? Amen. That is not normal. You should be maturing. Deb and I have 11 grandchildren now. The oldest one is only eight. So you can imagine when we get to family reunions what that must be like. And believe me, there's every personality you can imagine. We have drama queens. We have velociraptors. We have benevolent thugs. We have happy little campers. We've got everything you can imagine. And, you know, as I've watched with fascination my grandchildren grow up once in a while. And usually when it was about two or three years old, man, all of a sudden, they, you would watch them if they didn't get their way, throw a fit, flop themselves down on the ground, kick and scream, and just a pitch a fit. As they say, they pitch a fit down south. That's what they say. And, you know, at first it alarmed me a little, and I thought, well, yeah, you know, they're two or three years old. I kind of expect that. But let me tell you something. When they become 22 or 23, I am not expecting that kind of behavior. They should have grown out of that. Amen? Amen? Right. And Don't say, don't pause there. I mean, just if you're raising children, all right, got going to do it. They'll grow out of it, all right? Make sure they do. But, but listen, as Christians... There's behaviors we bring into our Christianity. There's habits and there's attitudes that are unbecoming a believer. And that's to be expected early on. But let me tell you, it shouldn't always be there. You should grow up and move beyond that in your Christian life. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, grow up. It tells us in 1 Peter 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, why, that she may grow thereby. And in 2 Peter, he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in James 1, turn your attention now to James 1. I want you to see here the very first area God wants you as a believer to grow up in. James 1, verse number 2, he says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, Wanting nothing. The very first area in the book of James that you and I are challenged to grow up in, write it in your notes. He is challenging you to grow up in your attitude toward trials and tribulations. Your Savior is challenging you through James to grow up in your attitude toward trials and tribulations. Notice the proper attitude, it's noted in verse number two. He says, my brethren, count it all, what's the word? Say it with me out loud, joy. Say it again, joy. What's the proper attitude? The proper attitude, write it down, is joy. Notice he says, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. He didn't say, count it all joy when you hit the lottery. He not say, count it all joy when everything's just going tickety-boo. He isn't saying, count it all joy when everything's going your way. No, he says, you count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, which is trials and tribulations. The proper attitude is joy. I want to say this. You cannot always control your circumstances, but you can always control your attitude. Amen. And the proper attitude is joy. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, my brethren, count. The word count means determine it to be so. Don't discount it. Count it all joy when ye fall. There, That, that idea of fall has the idea of this is unexpected. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I don't know who you are, but I seem to handle problems a little better when I get a little prep time. You know what I'm saying? I see it coming. Okay. All right. Here we go. But it's when you get blindsided by something. Oh, man. That's the hard one to deal with. He said, count it all joy when you fall into what? Divers. Means numerous. Multiplied. Not one at a time, but a whole bunch at the same time. You know, Morton Salt used to say this. What did they say? When it rains, it what? pours. Have you ever said that? In the middle of all kinds of things, when it rains, it pours. Now, that meant it didn't coagulate. That's what it was intended. But we've taken that little saying to denote multiply, multiplied trials. Not one, but boy, they just seem to come in numerical bounty. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Go to 1 Peter, just a few pages further. Look with me. In First Peter, in chapter number 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, look at what's said here. First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3. First Peter 1, verse number 3. Verse number 3, it begins with a heavenly look. We're going to be looking upward here at everything we have in our Savior. Watch this. First Peter 1, 3, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Look at this bounty that's ours in Jesus Christ who are kept by the power of God. You don't keep you. He keeps you. Amen. You're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice. Now watch this turn. Though now, though now for a season, a time, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, watch this that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Notice here we see that. Our faith, the trial of our faith, is likened unto gold. It is literally compared to this very precious commodity that right now is screaming high because we're alchemizing our dollar, but it's likened to gold. How do you tell the value of gold? Your faith is likened to gold. Can I come down and that camera still has me? All right. I'm always tempted when... When everybody's just YouTubing it, and they never do anything else. I'm always tempted to just go over here and preach. And they say, ah, oh, we missed you. I said, come to church, you'll see me. But uh, Oh, man, if you're live streaming, don't do me out right now, okay? But notice our faith, particularly the trial of our faith, is likened to gold, which means our faith, your faith, is very precious. Amen? That's a very precious commodity today to have faith. But you know, you can't tell the value of your faith just saying it's there. You can't just look at a piece of gold and determine its value. How do you determine the value of gold? There's only one way. You have to test it. You have to take it to the assayer, and they go ahead and put it through a series of tests. They check it for content. They check it for purity. They check it for its weight And only after it's been tested can they say, here is what the value of that gold is. Let me tell you something about your faith. That is a very intangible thing. You can only find out the value of your faith when it's tested. Only then do you find out how pure your faith is, how true your faith is, how real your faith is, how valuable your faith is. And let me say this, life, this life is where your faith gets tested continually. It's the proving grounds. Amen? You know, we struggle with that, don't we? We get so upset when things aren't going our way. And yet, here's the thing. Look at this little in your section. I want you to fill this out. Christian, you and I. I don't care how old you've been in the Lord. You can never grow until you get your attitude right about trials and tribulations. Your testing is not against you. Write this down. It's for you. It's for you. Your testing is not to break you. It's meant to build you. Those trials that come in your life that a sovereign God allows... Those tests are not meant to ruin you. He intends for them to reveal you and the purity and the value and the strength of your faith. Look with me in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel come to just such a test. Exodus chapter 15 They've just been delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea in a miraculous way. Look at what's said here in Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse number 22. We're talking about growing up in our attitude toward trials and tribulations. And the value and purity of your faith is never going to be determined without testing. Notice what's said here in Exodus 15, verse 22. It says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur." And they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people, look at how they responded, murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there... He did what? He proved them. Isn't that interesting? This is an interesting moment in the children of Israel's life. They've just had an incredible victory. In a supernatural way, God has delivered them from Egypt. They've traveled now three days into the desert, and can't you imagine with me how parched their tongues were? I mean, three days in the heat of the desert, heat like you had yesterday, 102 on the index, and man, I imagine after three days, their water supplies are gone. Their tongue is parched. And all of a sudden, those forward, uh, those forward outposts in that column, they come bringing the news back. We found water. There's water. And boy, don't you know, they just lit up. And I imagine they begin to sing. They saw that water. And, and I imagine amongst them, they're going, isn't God good? Oh, man, he makes a way in the wilderness. Isn't our God good? And then they stoop to drink that water oh, are they disappointed. It's bitter. It's unpotable. It's undrinkable. How do they respond? Look at what it says here. And the people murmured against Moses. Yeah, I need to remind you this morning, believers, God doesn't inhabit the murmurings and complainings of His people. Amen? He inhabits the praises of His people. And a lot of times we say, well, I'm just murmuring against some visible authority. Look with me in chapter 16 in verse number 8. Moses reminds them who they ultimately had the problem with. In chapter 16, verse 8, the end of verse 8, he said, your murmurings are not against us. They're not against me. They're not against Aaron. They're against the Lord. Amen? I think sometimes you forget, Christian, that when you go ahead and badmouth the boss and murmur against the boss, you're really murmuring against God. You murmur against uh, children, your parents, you're murmuring against the Lord. You murmur against the preacher, you're murmuring against the Lord. They're constituted authorities, God's sovereign. Amen? And what's interesting to me in verse 25, in the midst of all their complaining, God had already made provision. The tree was already there the whole time. Amen? Amen? They didn't have to murmur and complain. God had already set it up there to be cast in and make the water sweet. I want you to notice something about this little moment here, okay? Number one, in this trial, they were not out of God's will. Amen? They weren't out of God's will. Do you know in this trial, Moses wasn't out of God's will. He was right where God wanted him. Do you know in this trial, the devil didn't make him do it? The devil wasn't anywhere near this thing. God did this whole thing for one single reason. Why? To prove them, and they failed the test. They failed the test by murmuring. They failed the test by complaining. You say, how do I pass a test when a trial comes? Let me say today, some of you are going to have trials before this day is over there's going to be something that happens that just blindsides you you're either going to react or you're going to respond how do you pass that trial how do you pass that test one simple word with patience with patience look back here in James chapter 3 look with me you and I need to grow up in this area concerning trials and tribulations how do you pass the test you pass the test with patience look what's said and Verse number two of James chapter, James chapter one, he says, My brethren, count it all joy. When you fall into divers temptations, watch this now, knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work. You know, the proper response to trials, write it in your notes, is patience. Write it down. The proper response to a trial is patience. Authentic and mature Christianity recognizes the number one thing you need in your life in the midst of a trial is patience. What is it? Say the word with me. Patience. Say it again. Patience. Mature Christianity, they recognize that the number one thing you need in your life in the midst of a trial is patience. Yet... Have you ever heard somebody say this? Don't pray for patience. You ever heard that? I can think of some people that have told me Raise your hand. You said, I've heard that. People have said, don't pray for patience. You ever heard that? (laughs) Why are they saying that? Well, they're drawing it from Romans chapter 5. Go there with me. In Romans chapter 5, we see where this conclusion comes from. And I understand what they're saying, but watch something. I'm going to give you something that that rarely you hear, and yet I think it's very biblical. Romans 5 says this, in Romans chapter 5, and verse number 3, the Bible says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation. You ready for this? Also, knowing that, here it comes, tribulation worketh patience. Early in my Christianity, I can think of Miss Sharon. She would say this all the time. Sharon, bless. Sharon, she would always say this. Now, Brother Dave, don't pray for patience. I say, well, why not, Miss Sharon? I'm a very impatient person because tribulation worketh patience, and if you ask God for patience, he's going to make sure to send all kinds of tribulation your way. Now, I understood what she was saying. That wasn't entirely off, but you know, can I ask a serious question this morning? How many of you in the last month in your prayer life have very passionately been begging God for patience. How many of you have been doing that? Anybody? Anybody? Well, then can I follow it up with this question? How many of you in the last month have still gotten trials, trouble, and tribulation? Could could show of hands? Huh? All right. Amen. You see, whether you pray for patience or not, you're still going to get the tribulation in the sin-cursed call, sin mudball called earth, all right? Jesus said in John 16, ye in this world, he's talking to his disciples, ye shall, not might, you shall have tribulation. You know what I found? There's no shortage of trials. There's no shortage of oops. There's no shortage of, 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 of tribulations and tests. You know what the shortage is in there's a great shortage of patience today. So I say, pray for patience. And the Word of God says it too. Go to Rome, here in Romans just a little further. Watch this. In Romans chapter 12, look at the command given here. He says, here's what we're to be. Romans 12 He says this in verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Verse 11, not slothful in business, Romans 12, 11, we're to be fervent in spirit, we're to be serving the Lord. Verse 12, we're to be rejoicing in hope. Well, watch this, we are to be patient in tribulation. The number one thing you need in a trial is patience. Write that in. We are to be patient in tribulation. Why is that, Christian? Why would God want you to exercise patience to look to Him for that incredible character quality that only He has? He's a long-suffering and patient Savior. Why would He want you to beg Him for that, pray for that? Why would He want you to have that in the midst of a trial? Well, two reasons. Number one... Patience, get your pens ready, patience allows you to reflect the glory of God. Right in the middle of that trial, patience will allow you to reflect the glory of God. Look at Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Go there with me and look at what the Bible says about this in Philippians chapter 2. I believe today that you and I should be praying for patience as believers. We should be asking God to give us that grace, to give us that power, to give us that long-suffering spirit toward people and toward events as believers, because that's who Jesus is, amen? He's a very long-suffering Savior. And the very first reason this morning, Christian, that you should take this seriously, that you should ask God to give you patience is because patience will allow you to reflect the glory of God. Look at what's said in Philippians 2 and verse 14. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. How many things? All. What's all? All is all. All right? There's nothing that is is outside of the realm and sphere of all. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Why? Why? Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Wow. This world is an impatient place to live in. You don't think so. Live on the road full time in a motor and travel with me. This is an impatient place. The American dream is standing in front of a microwave, yelling at it to hurry up. This is how Americans are. Amen? We're an impatient lot. And yet you and I need to recognize that our Savior is a very patient Savior, and He's living with inside of us. Amen? And though exterior may be impatient, interior in in us is a very long-suffering and patient Savior. And you need to recognize that patience allows you, in the midst of that trial, to literally reflect the glory of God. I wrote this down. Impatient people do not reflect Jesus Christ. They reflect sin, and self. Amen? Impatient people do not reflect the Savior. Impatient Christians do not reflect the Savior. They reflect sin, and they reflect self. Impatient people are not good listeners, and they're not good learners. You ever try to teach an impatient person something? It's almost impossible. No, I know. No, 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 yeah, you, you can't train them. You can't teach them anything. Impatient people are not good listeners. They're not good learners. They're unteachable. They're untrainable. Impatient people get carnal. They don't get spiritual. Moses, in his impatience at being the deliverer, went ahead and preempted the plan of God, took it upon his own self, and murdered an Egyptian to try to make it happen. Peter is an impatient in in Gethsemane, impatiently wanting the kingdom now and Jesus to be king. He drew a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Impatient people aren't spiritual, they're carnal. Amen? It is often sad for me as I travel America and get to know folk. It's sad to see a Christian who's been saved for years, act like a child, quit serving the Lord, react immaturely, get offended about some little trial, some little offense, some little thing that doesn't mean a thing in light of eternity. I want to literally take them, and I want to say, would you grow up? I said this during camp. Carnal people, impatient people, and ungodly people take little things and make them big. Just blow it out, man. But spiritual people, godly people, spirit-filled people take big things, whoosh, And they make them smaller. God isn't in drama queens. And drama kings. The world is. I'll tell you something about the world. Deb and I, the older we get, we assess it. Lost people love drama. Because this life is all they've got. They can't leave it alone. They've got to always justify themselves. They've got to always find somebody to slam. They always got to get on Facebook and put their two bits in there because this is all they got. It's all they got. Are you spiritual or are you carnal? You Want to know something? Some of you struggle with this patience and long-suffering because Jesus isn't even in you. I know that. I believe that. I'm not being mean. I'm not trying to act like I'm the Holy Spirit. I learned a long time ago some people never show fruit because they're just flat dead. They've never started a new life in Jesus Christ. They're just works of the flesh. But if you are saved, there'll be indicators. and One of them will be you want to represent Jesus well, and you can't do that without Patience. This wicked, dark world, impatient, man, they take note how you respond to something so differently than they do. Amen? Patience allows you to reflect the glory of God. But second of all, write this down, patience allows God to build your faith and character. Patience allows God to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. It allows God to build your faith and it allows God to build your character. Look at 2 Peter, look with me here. Look at this, how the Bible described it, describes this, it's just a little past the book of James. Look at what's said in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, look at what's said in verse number 3. 2 Peter 1 3. Watch this. Patience allows God to build your faith and God to build your character. In 2 Peter 1, in verse 3, he says this, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Now watch verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here it comes, verse 5, and beside this, giving all diligence, and that has the idea it's going to take some effort, it's going to take some focus, right, this isn't going to be one of these, you just trip over it and all of a sudden there it is, giving all diligence, what, add to your faith virtue, you know what virtue is? Clean living, virtue is holy living, Amen. Virtue is cleaning up the thought life. Virtue is getting away from the internet sites that are wicked. Y'all with me? Virtue is getting the tongue changed and and the language changed. That's virtue. It's clean living is what it is. But then watch this, he said, and add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, Bible knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance, oh, here it is, patience. Patience. And to patience, godliness. You know, a lot of times we look at that and say, well, now that I'm saved, I have faith. God wants me to add to to my faith all these things. He wants me to add to my faith virtue and Bible knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness. No, that's not what, if you look at it closely, that's not what it says. You know what he says? Now that you're saved, I want you to add to your faith Virtue. And once you have clean living down, you decide, I'm going to be holy. He said, I want you to add to that virtue knowledge. Not to your faith, but to the virtue that's there. And then once that virtue is built there, and the knowledge is built there, I then want you to add to that temperance. And then to temperance, I want you to put patience. And then to patience, once patience is in place, I want you to add to that godliness. You know what that tells me? If you do not get the victory in this area and do not grow up in this area, this need to be patient in tribulation, you will never be a godly Christian. Never. Never. It's a spiritual impossibility. You can't get your anger problem handled and fall on your face, sir, get on your knees and beg God to give you patience to deal with that moment, to go ahead and humble and weep rather than tear the place up and destroy everything around you. I'm going to tell you, you will never be a godly Christian, ever ever, spiritually impossible. Patience allows you to reflect the glory of God to that impatient, wicked world out there. They say, man, she's got someone I don't have. He's got someone I don't have. But then patience allows God to build your faith and your character. Patience is a big deal, amen? Yeah. Go back to James. Watch this. Watch the perfect work that's given here as I close this message out in James chapter 1. Look with me, believers. Look with me. Look at this perfect work that takes place. Again, start in verse 2 with me. I'll read James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire. Look at this contentment now. Wanting nothing. The spirit of contentment. Notice how this last section begins. Let. That would have the idea. Allow. Yield. 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 As you said, my dear sister, drop the reins. You've done a great job running, ruining your life. Why don't you just let God run it now? Amen? I put I in run, I get ruined. Just drop the reins. We can be so stubborn, even as believers. Notice, allow, let patience... Have her perfect work. The perfect work that patience produces, notice it says, that she may be perfect, mature, and entire, wanting nothing. The spirit of contentment prevails in your heart no matter what is raging around you. Notice what I wrote in your notes. This is very important as we're winding these thoughts down. The trial does not perfect you. Your response to the trial does. Now, I'm going to say that again. The trial doesn't perfect you. That's the proving ground. That's the test. That's what's going to reveal what's really in you. It's your response to the trial that will mature you and perfect you, and it's patience. Write it down. It's patience that produces the perfect work, not the trial. Amen? It's your response to the trial that brings about the perfect work that God wants to do for you. Patience is the response of the heart that is focused on the Lord. Look with me. Patience is the response of the heart that is focused on the Lord. Go to Psalm 40. As we're winding these thoughts down, look with me. In Psalm 40, look at an example of somebody that exercised patience in the midst of a trial. And look at how the contentment floods him and his Savior gets so much glory around him. Look at this. In Psalm 40, verse number 1, look at what the psalmist says. Psalm 40 and verse 1. He said, I waited, what's the word? Patiently. I waited patiently for the Lord. Look at that focus. His focus isn't around him. His focus is above him. He's waiting patiently for the Lord. He's looking at his Savior. Notice, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Where was he while well, he was waiting patiently for the Lord? He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. Man, this psalmist wasn't sitting in wonderful circumstances, he was sitting in the muck and mire of. Horrible trial and a horrible tribulation. In the midst of all that, he could have been murmuring about the trial. He could have been murmuring about the mire. He could have been murmuring about the clay. He wasn't. He was patiently looking to the Lord. You get in a trial, what do you stare at? The trial? Oh, that's all you're going to stare at. You'll just be a murmurer and a complainer. Because you're staring at the trial, you'll be no better than the trial. You'll empty yourself quickly. You and I don't have that much strength in trials. And I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna be a pretty nasty person. Now, this this psalmist, in the midst of the outhouse of life, because that's probably where he was, in a dungeon, he looked upward patiently to the Savior. And notice, the Lord rewarded him for his patience. There's the building of the faith. He heard my cry. And then he what? Brought me up also out of that horrible pit out of the miry clay. Oh, he set my feet upon a rock. He established my goings. Look at that contentment there. He said, he put a new song in my mouth. Amen? Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. There's God getting glory because of the patient spirit exercise. When you learn to wait on Him, you learn to rest in Him. How many of you ever met a man named Ron Henderson? Raise your hand. Two-star general, United States Air Force. He was stationed here for a while. He was a member of your church. Years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and probably about three years into the ministry, and I was at a... Church and at that church Sunday night after the service is over, my wife and I were there with all six of our kids. There were a little singing group, and the pastor, Bud Calvert, announced that I would be preaching Wednesday night, and Summersorf would be singing. They closed the service in prayer, and as people were leaving, all of a sudden a man in a suit and a tie came up to me. He said, Brother Sommerdorf, he said, My name's Ron. And I just want you to know I'm not going to be here Wednesday, and I want to apologize that I won't be able to hear you preach. But the Air Force has me checking missile silos out in the Dakotas. And I want you to know I'll be praying for you, and I'm sorry I won't be here. I just wanted you to know where I'd be. And off he goes. My first time to the church, I don't really know anybody except Bud Calvert. And I remember Brother Bud, and I said, who's that guy? I mean, checking in with me. I'm just a nobody, you know. He said, oh, that's my two-star general, Ron Henderson, you know. He's one of the two ushers I have. He's one of my main ushers. And he does this every time. Every time I, he's going to be out of town, he checks in, lets me know where he's going to be, apologizes, tells me he'll be praying for me. He just wants to make sure I know where he'll be. Two-star. Well, thus begin a wonderful relationship with Ron Henderson. Ron and I became dear friends as I would come through. Kimberly hired on, and for eight years, she was a fourth-grade teacher there, our oldest daughter. And once or twice a year, I'd come through that church. We'd visit Kimber's, and, of course, Ron would be there invariably, and we'd chat and talk and just fellowship. Ron was a dear-soul, down-to-earth guy, and it was all about the king, man. It wasn't the stars on him. It was his eternal life up there. He really loved the Lord. And then... I remember the day came where we found out Ron Henderson had lung cancer. He smoked 35 years earlier, but he quit after he got saved and was challenged by a young lieutenant. He just quit and had not smoked for almost 35 years. But, man, he got cancer, and he began to battle that thing. I'd come back through like a time-lapse photograph and see Ron, and I watched him just literally shrivel right in front of my eyes. He just got weaker and weaker, but he continued working 60-hour weeks at the Pentagon. Linda would bring him in, drop him off. He'd work a a full 12-hour day, and then he'd collapse in the car. She'd pick him up, bring him home. He began to literally deteriorate. His ribs began to crack. He had to have a body cast holding him together, kept working, kept serving, stayed faithful. I remember calling Kimberly one Christmas. How are you doing, Kimberly? Great. I said, hey, how's Ron doing? And she said, oh, Dad. He's the most amazing guy. We, as teens and young singles, we all went over to carol for him and sing for him. And as we're singing and stuff, we finished up and. They said, come on in, and it was all about us. You know, he's smiling. How you doing, Kimberly? How you doing? He began to talk to every one of them. They're serving the punch. They're serving the cookies. It was dad. It was all about us. There wasn't one complaint. There wasn't one snarl. There was no tone of bitterness. He just loved serving us. One of the greatest honors, Ron, (laughs) paid our family. Two and a half weeks before he died, he came to our daughter's wedding. He wanted to be there to see Kimberly and Pierre get married. My family came in from Minnesota. My dad, former Navy, he always loves the old war horses, loves to talk to that history. I remember as dad came in there, we're gathering. I said, Dad, I want you to meet somebody. It was the wedding morning, and I took him over. I said, Dad, this is Ron Henderson. Ron Henderson. He's a two-star in the Air Force, wonderful friend of mine. Brother Ron, this is my dad, Ron, Ron Sommerdorf. And he served in the Navy in the Mariner Marlins as a radio man. And then I just took a step back, and I love watching the old warriors talk, you know. and They just lit up, shared things. I remember... About a year before his death, I saw Ron in church. He was there in a the foyer greeting people. I said, Brother Ron, good to see you. I said, how you doing? And this is what he said to me. He lit up. He said, Brother Dave, cancer's my final call. It's the final assignment God has given me in life. It's my final. Final call. I said, what do you mean, Brother Ron? Oh, Brother Dave, he said, at that Pentagon, there are high and powerful people that would normally never give me the time of day to tell them that Jesus saves. But because they know I'm a dying man, they pause. They show me honor. They show me respect. And they let me tell them whatever I want Pilot terms. He flew that thing to splashed out. Never punched out. He gave God the glory all the way. The final second of fuel. The day he died, I got the call. Giver said Brother Ron passed away. I picked the phone up, dialed my dad. I said, Dad, just want you to know, Ron Henderson passed away. My dad never talked a lot. He was a quieter guy, totally opposite of his son. But when he spoke, he'd say very profound things. And on the other end of the phone, I heard my dad say this. Well, the old general's home. One of the last things Ron did is he gave me permission to address every Air Force individual I send a pocket pack to. He's my cover card. His story, his words, his challenge to consider a Savior. And he being dead is so alive now, but he's still speaking. He wasn't punching out the walls, wasn't blaming God, wasn't drop-kicking things, freaking out, fretting, all upset that he got cancer. No, he exercised patience, and he became one of the godliest men I've ever known. And to this day, he still influences thousands for the Savior's sake. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Brothers and sisters, let's grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulations. Amen? Let's pray.